for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Brittany Allen, Commercial Group Coordinator at the PGA of America. Like many in the sports industry, Brittany got one of her first opportunities in sales, making cold calls, trying to sell tickets to an upcoming event. Whenever I talk to new graduates, I always say like, don't turn away the sales job. Don't just apply for the marketing jobs. And then when you don't get the marketing jobs, give up, take the sales job because you don't have to do it forever. And it teaches you so much that you can use in the future. Since then, Brittany has worked for a number of different organizations in a variety of roles, including having worked for the city of Minneapolis during a time in which it played host to a Final Four and a Super Bowl. They hired me because I was from the sports world. Government is government. <laughs> They're very similar across the country. And, you know, they have a certain way of doing things and there's protocols and there's procedures and people you have to talk to. And so, you know, I let the city staff do their job, but I tried to help them do their job. Now with the PGA of America, she is working to help innovate around their championship events while also staying true to its core identity. One of the things that actually was interesting to me with the organization was that mission base. It's our guiding light. We look at it in every decision we make, and that is serve the member and grow the game. In addition to describing her work experience, Brittany also shares quite a few lessons she has picked up during her career including from an impressive group of mentors. One thing that I took away and that I use in my personal life and my professional life is you don't have to be a jerk to get something done. Kindness really, really works. Now, sometimes you, you, know, you need to take a hard line. I just saw how he operated and how he carried himself and how he spoke to people. And that still resonates with me to this day. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. Don't forget that while you listen, you can visit credentialsonly.com for more information about many of the things we will discuss. And while you're there, you can sign up for our mailing list to get notified when we have a new episode. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with PGA of America Commercial Group Coordinator, Brittany Allen. Brittany, thank you so much for joining me. I have to start with a little bit of golf governance 101, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> You're with the PGA of America. What does that organization do and how is that different than the PGA Tour? It's a great question. And it's something that, you know, whenever we talk to new clients or um, people that aren't familiar something that we always have to cover, right? So the PGA of America is a member-based organization, a mission-based organization that is represented in the field by 28,000 PGA professionals. So those are the teaching pros that you see at golf facilities across the country. There are PGAs really across the world, but we're sort of the, the member org that makes a PGA professional a PGA professional. We have standards, we have education, continuing education, et cetera. Along with that, we have championship events. In 1968, the PGA Tour created their own organization that um, is now um, the tour of the, the touring professionals, very similar to the ATP Tour or the, you know, the WTA. Um, they said, we don't want to be a part of your organization anymore. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to get paid to play golf. Um, so we, uh, like I said, we also run um, championship events throughout the year. 
which is the stuff that, you know, most people would hear about. We operate the Ryder Cup in the United States. We run the PGA Championship, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship, and the Senior PGA Championship annually. Um, Ryder Cup is obviously every four years in the States, every two years in Europe. And we recently made the change to move it to odd years now with uh, COVID. So we're really excited about that so it doesn't conflict with the Olympics. So um, we, you know, we have a lot of, of, one of the things that actually was interesting to me with the organization was that mission base. Our, it's our guiding light. We look at it in every decision we, we make. Um, and that is serve the member and grow the game. So um, it's a little unique from a lot of sporting organizations, um, especially the ones that I've been in in professional sports. They're all, you know, they've been all revenue driven and this one's very different. You know, all the revenue we make goes back to serving that member and growing the game. So um, it gives a bit more purpose, I would say, to, to what we're doing. And revenue is a big part of what you do. You are in the commercial group. Is that servicing all these members or is it more specific working with those championships that you mentioned? So our commercial group is uh, made up of five different departments. Um, so we oversee broadcast, we oversee partnerships, whether they be revenue gener generating partnerships or member benefit based partnerships. Um, we also do marketing, we do communications, we do PR, we do merchandise. So really all of those commercial based, um, you know, departments per se. Um, we work closely with our championships department who does all of the operations type work related to our, our championships. But um, commercial group is, it really runs the gamut championships-based, member-based. Um, right now, something we're working on with the whole golf industry to really promote and take advantage of uh, the boom that golf has been seeing. And, and that's being led by our chief commercial officer um, in our organization. So there's, you know, it, it's really overarching um, as <laughs> the stuff we're involved in, which is, for me, very interesting, right? I get to dip my toe in a lot of, a lot of different um aspects of the business. So. You're more than toe deep in the event side and, and we'll get into a lot of the events you've done in the past, but I think when people look at golf as an industry in particular golf events and championships like you run, hospitality opportunities and golf tournaments seem to go hand in hand. What is that product that you're out there working with as you guys put on these championships when it comes to that hospitality component? Yeah, so we, I mean, we really focus on um, our championship events, like I mentioned. So the Ryder Cup is really one of the world's preeminent events. Um, it is so unique in that it is literally the opposite of a, um, what people could describe. I don't think it is, is a, of a boring, you know, golf tournament. Um, it's, you know, truly a team event. And um, the first tee at the Ryder Cup, I'm looking forward to it in September um, is supposed to be uh, one of the most, you know, exhilarating um, experiences in, in sports. So I'm really looking forward to that in, in Kohler, Wisconsin. We're hoping that it will be sort of uh, 
as close to back to normal um, at that point and um, that we can really, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed, we can really bring everybody together and um, have a great event. And that one, you know, that hospitality experience is, is one like no other, um, just because it is such a sought after event. Um, the hospitality experiences are, are extremely high end. Um, and, you know, I love uh, going to golf tournaments because you can take a walk. It's, it's a very um, dynamic experience, right? And, and uh, we definitely will deliver on that at the, at the Ryder Cup um, in Kohler in September. We also have the PGA Championship, which um, moves every year. Last year, um, we uh, held it at Harding Park in San Francisco. And this year in May, it will be in uh, Kiowa Island in South Carolina. And Kiowa Island, the, the ocean course there is right on the water. I mean, I can't even, I can't think of a, a better um, backdrop for, for a golf event in, in May. Um, and so we're looking forward to delivering for our clients. Um, you know, we, we've been able to sell out there. South Carolina is really into golf. Um, we did just recently lower the capacity, but, um, you know, we hope that, uh, everyone that's able to make it will really enjoy the, the experience. You know, PGA Championship for us is the event that we look to innovate. We're not the masters. Um, we're not the US Open. We wanna be the cool major. And that's um, what we really focus on with that event, particularly with our partners, trying to come up with some new technologies, um, lead in the digital space, work with ESPN, who's our new partner this year as a, as a broadcast partner who really is helping us push the envelope related to, um, you know, making golf different and the, and the experience different than it has been in the past. So, um, and then also, you know, we have our, our women's event, KPMG women's PGA championship is, uh, is a major on the LPGA tour. And, um, you know, we, we have great, a great partnership with KPMG who really um, works for women. And then of course the, the senior PGA to uh, with our, our partner um, KitchenAid. And we hold that event in their, in Benton Hills in Michigan, which is where their corporate headquarters is. Um, and it really brings up that community, um, that event annually. So um, a lot of different offerings, but I feel like, you know, we have something for everyone as it relates to our championships, certainly. You touched on quite a few things that I want to take, yeah, you, sorry. take advantage of to follow up on here. No, that's perfect. So the first was making it cool. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's sometimes this default of, okay, let's make it cool. Uh, make a TikTok and get it out there. But you talked about how cool touches on broadcast, how it touches on the partnerships. What are some of the specific things that you're doing and also, what is the approach to coming up with those cool ideas? Is it all just you guys in the room or a Zoom, I guess, talking about it? Or is it mm -hmm. collaborative with that ESPN partner or with KitchenAid or with whomever that sponsor mm -hmm. is to come up with those cool innovations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly a combination of all of that, right? Um, certainly, the partnership with, with ESPN has really pushed the envelope um, for us in particular as it relates to uh, certainly broadcast elements and, and things like that. They are the leader um, in trying to innovate in the space. Um, 
from a, a partnership perspective, certainly our partners are trying to help us get better and, and, and vice versa. Um, we have a couple of cool projects. I don't want to say too much up for this year that were sort of put on the back burner um, from last year that um, we're really looking forward to. Um, you know, last year, we always try also to, to bring our member to the forefront. So one of the programs that we've done um, is called the Team of 20. And that's 20 PGA professionals that are the top 20 at the um, PGA professional championship get to play in the PGA championship. So we look for ways to track them um, and to really highlight them throughout our, our broadcast and throughout the event. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a... Uh, collaborative effort with um, our partners and and our broadcast partners and you know and internally too obviously we're, we're trying to to push the envelope you know social and and digital is certainly a way to do that as well um, we recently brought that business in-house and so we have a lot of great new ideas um, with some of the new staff that we have on board and and that's also another way to to try to push that envelope for everybody, I think took on increased importance with COVID, but for you guys, you came back and ran championship event mm -hmm. without all that public mm -hmm. interest, without all those partners able to activate on site. Mm -hmm. did, did that change the emphasis on digital last year at Harding Park? I think it certainly put some more pressure on it for sure. Um, you know, funny enough, like I said, we, we recently brought the business in house. We, um, previously had it with a third party company. And, um, so it actually, the delay in, in the event gave us more time, um, which was good. Um, but we were sort of reimagining it as it was anyway. So it was the perfect opportunity as our coming out party to say, Hey, like, this is our voice now. This, this is the track we're going to take. This is what our new website looks like. This is what our, you know, you can feel our voice in our, in our social posts. And um, so it was kind of um, weirdly like the timing was, the, was right, you know? Um, so I, Harding Park, you know, ended up being the golf event of the year, we think, uh, <laughs> um, you know, with COVID and uh, not having guests on site, but that golf course is beautiful and, and really um, lent itself well to a spectatorless event. And we thought went off without a hitch with our new partner ESPN, um, you know, really leading the helm. And I should, I would be remiss not to mention CBS as well, who does the later rounds, um, you know, really anchoring our coverage with uh, Jim Nance and, and the team. So in the earlier part, you talked about it being a dynamic experience when you're on site and, and when things are normal and we have, you know, spectators all over the place, it, it's dynamic. And I want you to explain what you mean by dynamic, dynamic with a little mm -hmm. bit more specificity, but also touch on something that I think sets golf apart in the time spent on venue as well. Cause I think that changes that user experience when they do come to a golf tournament. Certainly, you know, the, the fact that you can walk from hole to hole and have a different experience at, at each hole, um, to me as a spectator is one of the, the coolest things you can stay in one place. If that's your thing, you can, um, walk around to, to the different holes of the course. You know, there's, 
there's hills, there's grass, there's dirt, there's, um, you know, just the golf course experience itself without all the other stuff to me is, is super cool to, to experience. And I'm a non-golfer, so it's not like I'm getting real close and saying, Oh, but that's a great angle that to take that. I have no idea. And I need to learn how to play because obviously golf is a sport for life and will be good to me the rest of my life being, um, in, in the, in the biz, but, um, you know, the, the sponsor activations at golf tournaments are super high end and they're obviously directed at the spectator. Um, you know, again, without, um, releasing too much, we have some really exciting stuff planned for, for May with our partners, you know, our, our, um, alcohol partners are always super, um, innovative Michelob ultra. We have, uh, on board fun bars to experience and, uh, fun activations. And then of course, um, you know, hospitality, uh, the, the high end hospitality that our partners put together for their clients, um, is really, you know, bar none. It's, it's a, it's a super, super great experience for those that that get to experience that, um, part of it. On an earlier podcast, I spoke to Aaron Stone, who's the tournament director of the World Golf Championships FedEx St. Jude Invitational mm-hmm. in Memphis. And we talked about the operational challenges that are kind of the mm-hmm. flip side of that in you don't have a seating bowl with a manifest and tickets mm-hmm. assigned and luxury boxes. Everything has to be built out. And she talked about how hard that is. And they're playing on the same course every year. As right. you guys go from course to course to course, it's got to be an opportunity and a challenge to replicate what somebody loved or to create some new experience because every year it's different. You mentioned the, the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. I don't think there is a single square inch of flat surface at that mm-hmm. course. So for you guys to go in every year and look at this as a blank canvas, what are those challenges and opportunities? Certainly, like uh, it requires a lot of planning. Obviously, um, we have teams on the ground in in each of our um, cities two to three years in advance to work through those those challenges, those building challenges, and and how do we sell this stuff to our clients if we don't know what we're building, right? So it's all of that advanced planning that is super important. We also have identified you know, a handful of courses across the country that are up to our standard and that we know can host a successful event. And so, although we are to some extent starting from scratch, some of those we're revisiting. You know, we've played the PGA Championship at Kiowa before. Is the site plan the same? No. Were they able to use the site plans from last time? Sure, as a, you know, as a base. So, there's definitely um, challenges there for sure. You know, back in my days in tennis, it, thinking about that and creating that atmosphere now compared to literally, okay, we've got X amount of feet. What can we put here? What do we do? You know, we, we have the best in the biz doing it also. Um, our champion, chief championships officer, officer, Carrie Hay, has been on the job for 30 years and he knows how to set up a golf course. And so we really don't worry about how it will come out um, because we just have, you know, full faith in what he is doing, what he and his team are doing. But we do have to work with the, uh, his team in 
fulfilling those partner obligations and making sure everybody's happy and, and um, you know, a partner comes up with a wild hair and, and wants to create a three-story structure somewhere on the 18th green. Like, how can we make this happen? What's possible? What's not? So in a lot of ways, it's, it's a good thing too, because we do have um, flexibility in what we're doing and, and we can try to customize those experiences for our partners. Major events are nothing new for you. What was your job before you were with the PGA of America? Yeah, so I was with uh, the city of Minneapolis and I helped the city coordinate um, the Super Bowl and the Final Four. So the Super Bowl 52 and then the Final Four after that. And uh, obviously like probably the opposite of what I'm doing now in a lot of ways, Um, but was a great experience. Um, working in the city. Obviously, there's a lot going on that, on there now, but um, when I was there, it's a, it's a lovely place. Probably one of the most, um, besides the weather, the weather is, is very intense. <laughs> in the summer, it's great. Um, the rest of the time, I, um, but it's a great, it's an underrated city, I would say, and um, I think was a great host to those major events. Um, you know, that were, that were there recently. So as a representative of the city of Minneapolis, how were you interfacing with the NFL or the NCAA mm-hmm. and a local organizing committee to mm-hmm. facilitate those events happening? Yeah. So I was, they hired me because I was from the sports world. I was not a city worker that did not understand how, how to speak to, to those, you know, how to speak the language of, of the sports world. So I was really the go between, um, between the NFL and the local organizing committee and the NCAA, um, you know, government is government. Uh, they're very similar across the country and, you know, they have a certain way of doing things and there's protocols and there's, um, you know, procedures and people you have to talk to. And so, you know, I let the city staff do their job, but I tried to help them do their job. I tried to make the connections needed. I tried to um, talk the talk on both sides, uh, which I don't think it got me in trouble, but maybe I did, you know, I was in trouble and I didn't even know it. Uh, but, you know, we have, obviously those events are extremely high security events. So um, our police department and our fire department responses were paramount. Those were the, the things we spent the most time on, um, you know, coming up with those plans, working together with NFL security and then CAA security. Um, you know, the, that probably took the most time. Secondary traffic, um, the, the street closures, the um, rerouting of traffic, making sure traffic is flowing properly. That also took a lot of time to create those traffic management um, programs. These traffic engineers, they're like, they, they don't really care about the Super Bowl. They, you know, they're like, okay, we got to put a sign here and we got to put a sign there. So that's really where I stepped in and I was like, okay, let's think about this in a different way, <laughs> you know, or NFL wants all the streets closed and so does the local organizing committee. And that's when I said, but we have residents that live in this building. How can we get around this? So it, you know, it was, it was some of that stuff that, um, you know, I dealt with every day. Permitting was like most fun slash awful thing ever. <laughs> it's a necessary evil, but you know, Super Bowl and, and final four hospitality events. So you have to make sure the food's safe. 
Um, you have to make sure that those temporary structures are built to code and they're not going to fall on someone when they're, when they're, um, you know, checking out the, the sponsor activation. So I think I was successful in, um, you know, trying to bridge those gaps between the two groups that typically don't speak the same language and that are, could be at odds, if you will. <laughs> Paint the picture because at home, I tune in and I see the three hour game or the two hour basketball game. And mm -hmm. I see that one playing surface and maybe some nice cutaway scenics of the city, but that's about it. If you're actually in the Super Bowl city or the final four city, by no means is that event contained to that one venue, is it? No, no. You know, with the Super Bowl, it's a 10 day event. Um, literally 10 days of programming uh, and in Minneapolis's situation, it was all contained downtown. It was all walkable downtown, which was really great for, for people attending the event. Um, you know, they have, obviously, people hear about the parties, right? So those happen across the city at venues. Um, but there's experiences for all fans of the city, fans and people that live in the city. Um, they have the NFL experience, which is in a in their convention center typically. And that's all the fun NFL, um, you know, run the 40 yard dash, um, sponsor activations, all that kind of stuff. And then in Minneapolis, we had Super Bowl Live, which was a great outdoor, which outdoor in February, put that one together, um, <laughs> experience where every night there were concerts, there were, you know, food trucks. Like it was a really fun outdoor thing that, you know, Minnesotans are really hardy and they went out there every day and, and checked out what was going on. And, um, you know, it's, it's truly, it just, I don't want to say it takes over the city because the city was still functioning. Um, but it really, um, you know, livened downtown for, for 10 days in the middle of winter when typically, you know, it would be pretty quiet. Um, and so all of that, it's, 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 a really fun thing to be a part of. Um, but it obviously is a, a lot of work and a grind for the 10 days. Um, I joked with my colleagues that they needed to, from my days working in tennis, which is actually pretty similar from an, from a time commitment perspective, um, that they should do all of their laundry, you know, go grocery shopping, all that kind of stuff. And they laughed at me. They were like, what are you talking about, Brittany? We don't have, and by the end they were like, we actually used your advice and it worked. And I was like, yeah, I told you, like, I know you work for the city and usually you, know, you have a nine to five, but this is, this is a little different. And so it was a great bonding experience for those folks who, you know, typically work um, a less exciting in my perspective, <laughs> <laughs> but for more of a, you know, more fun um, project for them and, and they loved it. And I, still have friends out there that uh, I talked to and, and it was a really great experience. NCA is very similar. Uh, they come in and they have some indoor and outdoor events as well. Um, maybe not a full 10 days, but uh, it's, it's a pretty close to a week, I would say of activity in the city. And it's just a really, really fun time to be a, a citizen of a city or a fan that's coming in um, for an event like that. For sure. I'm sure there were some, city council meetings and, and other of, of those types of things that you had to sit through and, and hear the debate back and forth of 
whether or not working with and supporting these events was good for the city. What, from your perspective, is the benefit to a city? There's obviously the economic impact of all the hotel rooms and catering Mm -hmm. deals and all that business is being generated, but the non-tangible benefits that you saw from being in Minneapolis and especially in a city that hosted these events really, what, 14, 15 months apart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, personally, I think it put Minneapolis on the map, you know. Um, they worked with the Vikings and built a beautiful new um, stadium. And so a part of that is typically, you know, you get to host the big events. And I think, as I said earlier, I think Minneapolis is a bit of a sleeper city. It's got a great food scene. It's The people are unbelievably nice. And so I think something like this, you know, a CVB or a, a organization like that could spend millions of dollars on marketing on national campaigns, but to see um, a city be, you know, hosting a big event like that, it's, it's, it's not the same. Um, you know, it's, it's intangible. Like you said, it's intangible. You, and you really see it now, even later with the, uh, I, I mention it to people and they're like, oh yeah, I remember you hosted the Super Bowl and and there's that big spoon with the cherry. And like, you know, <laughs> people would have never known that before um for those events. Obviously, you know, people know Prince is from there, but um I think, you know, it was a good uh host city for the event and they really, really capitalized on some of those things that that put them on the map. Unfortunately, now they're on the map for not so good things, but, um, you know, <laughs> um, I think we came out of those pretty positive. From the city's perspective, you guys are having to make sure that everything runs smoothly around the event. So the event happens. And you talked about some of the road closures. You talked about the higher security, even for the final four in April, but for sure for the Super Bowl in February, you had to worry about weather and mm-hmm. those contingencies. From that city perspective, how much time was spent on those logistics and contingency plannings just to make sure that everything did happen, not only without a hitch, but also safely? Yeah. Obviously, you know, Super Bowl in the middle of February, the first thing you think of is snow. And so, you know, I lived in Washington, D.C. They don't deal deal with snow well. That's not a secret. Um, (laughs) But in Minneapolis, because it snows so often, um, they're really pros when it comes to that. So, you know, our, our, they started at a much higher baseline than, than most cities in the country, I would say. Um, but, you know, we relied on help from our partners. That's, you, could, you ask anyone that does any of these events. Minneapolis is a decent sized city, but it's not huge. And so we really brought in staff from, from other jurisdictions, from neighboring cities, from from neighboring counties. And we had uh, snow removal plans and how do we get the the plows inside the the security perimeter? Do we have to sweep the the snow plows? You know, all kinds of things like that. Details that you wouldn't think would be a thing totally are. And, um, you know, how do we remove snow on a street around a sponsor activation, which funny enough, it did snow Saturday night. It didn't snow a lot, but it had a beautiful blanket of snow for the game on Sunday. Um, So, you know, do we give the sponsors shovels? Do they remove their own snow? Like what, you know, how do we figure all this out to to make everybody happy? So 
we definitely um, thought about that and for, for Super Bowl certainly. And then final four is in March and in Minneapolis, that could mean snow or that could mean 80 degrees. Um, so we, we definitely went through all those contingency um, plans and dusted off our Super Bowl plan. So if we did get a big dumping of snow, we used sort of the same um, plans from that. One of the things that uh, I never knew, I thought, and I thought was interesting is you have to, um, the manholes, like in the street, you have to make sure those are cl cleared and that, and then like the police had to check them to make sure like people weren't stowing away in, in the manholes. I was like, what? Like, this is crazy. Like, what's going on here? you got to, these huge manholes, you have to check from a security perspective and then make sure from a, you know, weather perspective that they're properly secured and all this stuff. I had no idea. I was like, well, I'm glad, you know, the experts are taking care of this because I would have never said, well, what about the manholes? Are those, are those ready to go? <laughs> and then once you know that, you realize there are way more manholes than you ever thought about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they told, they're like, we just took care of this. And I was like, oh, great. Thank, <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you're with a governing body. Now you have been with a government body before. Mm -hmm. How do those compare? You know, I had a feeling you were going to ask this question. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think uh, elected officials and, um, you know, senior executives, and I think they're sort of, you know, all, um, I don't want to say they're the same, but the way you approach them is, is, is very similar. Um, you want to have all the answers before, before you even ask the question, right? And, and you want to uh, treat them with respect and, um, you know, make sure you've got all your stuff buttoned up. The, the interesting part of working in the government is that everything is public, right? So if I had to go speak at a city council meeting, it was like broadcasted on the internet. And I was like, oh, this is a little nerve wracking. Um, so <laughs> although, you know, the, the, um, the stuff I'm doing now is not broadcasted on the internet, all the meetings I'm having with, with execs, like I think it, it prepared me to be able to speak to them um, and, and um, connect with them and, and really have my ducks in a row prior to presenting an idea or, or needing approval on something. Um, you know, connecting with people that you, that aren't the same as, as you, I think is always a good thing in, in any job um, or and in life, frankly. Um, and so, you know, learning about how someone does their work and, and how they best succeed and how can you help them is transferable really to, to anything. And so um, I think that obviously they're very different, but um, I think a lot of the skills that are definitely transferable. Your experience with DC Winters came when working with a couple of teams uh, mm -hmm. in Washington. You were, uh, I think, four seasons with the Nationals, and then you were also with the Washington Castles from World Team Tennis. What were those team experiences like for you? And a lot of that was in a similar vein of dealing with partners and VIPs. Uh, is it really transferable to what you are doing now? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel like my, I kind of found a niche with this sort of VIP corporate hospitality and executive support um, in a lot of ways 
you know, they're all very similar. You know, some of the things that I was just mentioning certainly uh, applies. You know, working with a team is is different in that you really feel that camaraderie. And uh, I know at the Nationals, I was there for their first postseason run in 2020, 2012. And that feeling was unbelievable. And I had just joined the team then. And, um, you know, when they clinched, like, it, it's not, there's nothing like that uh, baseball postseason. It was the most fun. And, you know, we got to go again in 2014, I believe. Um, so that was, was really great. And then World Team Tennis, we won the championship. Um, <laughs> which, you know, Mark Iam is the owner of the castles and there is no, um, bigger, uh, you know, cheerleader for tennis and team tennis at that. And so working with him was really a great experience. Uh, I learned a lot there, um, met a lot of great people, a lot of great friends that I'm still, you know, really, really close with, uh, that experience is, a little, you know, world team tennis is a little different than major league baseball. Um, but you know, that, that team, camaraderie that that everyone's working towards one goal and and when the you know the team on the field or on the court succeeds the whole you know front office team feels that and and you know the the athletes that we were able to work with were super great and um really thankful for all the work that we put into it and you know world team tennis you get to know the athletes too just because the staffs are are much smaller and and we worked with some great players at the time. And so, you know, really great experiences, both, both ways. Washington strikes me as an interesting market to work in, especially Mm -hmm. in that kind of specific service of partners and sponsors, because there's so much going on. There's Mm -hmm. NFL, there's NBA, there's NHL, there's WNBA, there's ATP and WTA tournament in town. And oh, by the way, everything else from the arts and the Kennedy Center and speaker series and just there's no shortage of stuff. There's no shortage of opportunities for VIPs to have that VIP experience. Mm -hmm. How does that competition play into what you had to do in your work with the Nationals and the Castles? You know, the the Castles, I feel World Team Tennis is some of the most underrated underrated sport out there. Um, you know, the fact that it's both men's and women's combined and they're working together and you get to see singles, you get to see doubles, you get to see mixed. Like I, I think the product is extremely unique. Um, when I was there, we played right on the Potomac river. The venue was beautiful. Um, we built a tennis court on a asphalt, um, parking lot and it was awesome. Um, and so I think people just kind of wanted to come see it, to be a part of it. Um, we had a lot of VIPs come to our events. And so that was definitely a selling point for us. And it always is for corporate partners. Um, Michelle Obama came, you know, a- any sort of political celebrity you can think of. We had both um, at nationals, obviously, but, but particularly at the castles. And so we felt our product was you know, pretty unique in in the marketplace. And so that was sort of our value proposition. Um, You know, obviously Major League Baseball is Major League Baseball, right? People want to be a part of it. They come and they see their particular team. Um, And now there's lots of national fans when there didn't used to be. Um, 
So people are now coming to see them versus, you know, their hometown team. And so they're building, the learner family is building an awesome product in Washington, DC. They're really investing in a great venue and uh, they're investing in their team. And it's obviously shown up. They've won the world series. Um, One of my favorite stories is I got to meet John McCain um, when he came to see the Diamondbacks play. And uh, I was escorting him um, up to a suite uh, to say hello to some people. And I got to talk baseball in an elevator with John McCain. It was really, really cool. And that is something that could probably only happen in Washington, D.C. And those um, informal conversations and those, you know, business deals that happen there, it's just the, it's the place to be, certainly, you know, in the summer months. Um, So, you know, companies being a part of that is, is something that's just, yes, there's a lot to choose from, but, you know, each of them have their own unique aspects of it, for sure. You kind of set the table for what you did in Minneapolis with some of the side projects you had with the Nationals. Wondering what it was like to be a part of putting together an all-star game bid or the Winter Classic, which, uh, you know, the resume line is special projects, but those are some pretty cool things in and of themselves to be a part of. But like the Final Four, like the Super Bowl, a whole lot goes into putting on those special projects, isn't it? Certainly. Um, I think... One of the, the, the points that sort of, you know, is similar in all of those is that it re- really requires a whole organization to work together on a whole lot of seemingly small things, right? To make sure that this huge thing goes off without a hitch. And so that's where I feel like I enjoy, that's where I want to, that's where I like to be. I like bringing all of the pieces together. And, you know, that's certainly the case with, with uh, the all-star game. Unfortunately, I left before they actually played it because I had to go to Minneapolis to do Super Bowl. But, um, you know, all the reading the bids to those things is so interesting. Um, the, The stuff that you have to, as a property, be able to fulfill, to even be awarded the event. And then once the event is, is awarded. Such, uh, I'm going to stop you. Such yeah. as like what, you know, you, you <laughs> talked about the manhole covers being a surprising, what yeah. were some of the surprising things in some of these bid documents? You know, the, that obviously you need to have a certain number of hotel rooms in your city. Right. But mm-hmm. you have a certain, you have to have a certain number of meeting spaces that are X amount of square footage for all these hospitality events. Um, you know, uh, another good one for baseball is where does the media sit? So during a typical baseball game, we have a media center. It, uh, you know, accommodates all the people that um, cover games typically. And we have three or four broadcast booths for, you know, the different broadcast partners. But a postseason or an all-star game triples that. So where do they sit? Do they need a desk? Okay, we have to build them a desk. Um, so, so, you know, some of those things, and then, you know, then you have to argue about who pays to build the desk. Right. So it's, um, it's really interesting to, um, read those things because again, there are things in there that you, you would just never think of. And, um, particularly with an all-star game or, or a postseason, I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of media and hundreds and hundreds of them get turned away too. Um, and you don't really have control over, 
um, that you have to work closely with MLB because they're the one, it's their event, right? And, and you're the venue. Um, so having good relationships um, while you have those negotiations is so important um, because unless, you know, you'll end up giving away too much and that's not a good business proposition for anyone. So um, you cut your teeth in tennis, working for a few different events of Atlanta, Miami, New Haven. I want to start with your New Haven experience because I feel like a lot of people get their start in sports doing exactly what you did, which is calling and trying to call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I was in uh, New Haven and worked uh, with Ann Worcester, who is fabulous and, uh, you know, has been in tennis for so many years and just learned from her really how to run a successful event. Um, you know, she had a very strong support staff, but you know, she, she was the champion of that event and it was in New Haven for so long because of her. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so I went there for a summer and basically like made, they made a job for me cause they didn't really have a salesperson. And so I was like, Hey, have you called all the people that bought tickets last year? And they were like, no. <laughs> so then I called all of them. It's like, Hey, remember you went to the new Haven open last year. Do you want to go again this year? Um, you know, I feel like you need sales in anything that you do. You have to sell something to someone at some point, um, in any job. And so I feel like that, that job, although challenging, you know, for cold calling people to, to buy, um, tennis tickets is difficult. It's, it's humbling and it, and it teaches you a lot. And I was able to meet so many people, including yourself through those experiences, um, that I would have never, you know, done before. So whenever I talk to new graduates, I always say like, don't turn away the sales job. Do not, don't just apply for the marketing jobs. And then when you don't get the marketing jobs, give up, take the sales job because you don't have to do it forever. And it teaches you so much that you can use in the future and, and really use those networking opportunities for sure. Well, one of the most interesting comments I've ever heard from anyone in, in the sports was NBA commissioner, Adam Silver. Um, he talked about, he actually enjoys getting those telemarketing calls <laughs> and he, he won't necessarily go for it, but he'll string them along because he wants to see what's that avenue mm -hmm. to get my no to become a yes. What mm -hmm. are they going to do? How do they change the terms? What's the enticement that they're going to bring in to try to get that no to a yes? And that's something mm -hmm. that you don't really ever get to figure out unless you actually experience it from either side being sold to or doing that sale. Certainly. That's 100% true. That's really interesting. I should do that. <laughs> I have yet to do it, but it, it's always in the back of my mind when I see that spam risk come up on yeah. my phone. <laughs> the, uh, Ann Worcester, you mentioned in Miami, you were working with Butch Buckholz. I know you're working with mm -hmm. Jeff Price now. How do you take advantage of being around these people who are so well-established and really big time leaders in the sport who can mentor you, but mm -hmm. they can do what they do. The mentee needs to come to the party ready to learn from them. What have mm -hmm. you done to successfully take advantage of being affiliated with these icons in sport? 
Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And I think Butch, um, Butch is just such a great human. Uh, anyone that meets him will say the same thing. He is the sweetest, most caring person. And one thing that I took away and that I use in my personal life and my professional life is you don't have to be a jerk to get something done. Kindness really, really works. Now, sometimes you, you know, you need to take a hard line. Um, but he, I just saw how he operated and how he carried himself and how he spoke to people. And that still resonates with me to this day. Um, he, he's just fabulous and, and was super successful in his life, his, his playing career and his, his business life, obviously. Um, and he really opened a lot of doors for me. I took care of him and he took care of me (laughs) (laughs) from, uh, you know, meeting people. I, I, it, if I hadn't, um, taken that sales job at IMG, which I had, but for what felt like two weeks, and then I became his assistant, see, take the sales job, you never know what it's going to lead to. Um, I wouldn't be where I am today. He, like I said, he's just, He's fantastic. And so I'm lucky enough now to work with Jeff, who actually, in a lot of ways, reminds me a lot of Butch. Jeff is a very empathetic and and transparent leader. And he is really making his way in in the golf industry. He has a lot of different experiences as well. He worked at Sports Illustrated, worked at Gatorade. He worked um, Sporting News, MasterCard. So he's been all over the place and he's kind of done a little bit of everything too. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm really learning from him. I get to sit in on our leadership meetings and I see how he really elicits feedback from his team and, and he really leads from the top, but top down and, and bottom up. He, um, really values his employees opinions, which is, you know, not something that you see always. And, um, he's, he cares as a per, he cares for you as a person and, and, um, our CEO, Seth Waugh, who used to run Deutsche Bank America, is a, also a very, very successful um, businessman in himself and has just this empathy for, for people that is, um, you know, it's very rare in, in business in general and not just in the sports industry. And so um, every day I listen to these little nuggets that they have, um, you know, Seth's like a little, like a, He's like a, a bit of a sensei. He's just very calming in his presence. And like, he has a great way of presenting things. And so just listening to him speak, I try to like lean information off of him and, and try to emulate him, um, you know, when, when I'm going about what I'm doing. So. I think that you hit the nail on the head about the sales job being intimidating. Probably the second most intimidating thing for someone is they're starting out in their career is something else you mentioned briefly, networking. What have you learned about networking and how to take full advantage of those opportunities? For me, networking has to happen happen authentically. I'm not uh, the type of person that, um, it's hard for me to, to reach out to someone coldly and, and uh, you know, connect with them. Although I, I wish I could. And I think um, people who do do it successfully. Like, I think that's a, that's a great tactic, but you know, for me, I I try to, um, at every event, you know, 
have a conversation with people. I think the, the hardest but most successful part of networking is just keeping up with people. Um, everyone kind of can get carried away with, with what they're doing on a regular basis, especially in the time we're living in now. Um, and so it's so important to just keep up with people. Um, How do you do that? What's your secret? <laughs> um, well, you know, I think social media certainly helps that, right? Um, so I try to stay, you know, I try to stay linked to people, whether it be LinkedIn or Facebook or, or Instagram. And um, that's a good way when you see what's going on with people, like just comment on their thing. That's how we got reconnected, right? You never know um, what's going on. So I, I don't post that much, but when I do post, that's a good way to, to you know, keep in touch with people. Um, and then, you know, just drop people like a random email. How you doing? I saw XYZ is going on in, in tennis. What's going on? And, and Butch was really good at that. Um, he really kept up with, with his buddies and, and his business associates and, and probably is why he's so successful. Um, so yeah, for me, it has to be authentic, but I think, um, you know, it's, I think it's important to keep in mind that you never know um, that someone, someone that you're talking to, what they do or what perspective they have and how they could help you in the future. That's not my motivation for talking to someone, but it's just good to have in the back of your head because you never know when you may need to call on them for advice or, or help on something. You've given great advice so far. Is there other advice though for someone who's trying to get into the industry to successfully get into it? And I think to mirror what you've done in terms of taking advantage of every opportunity you've had every step of the way where, and you mentioned within IMG, your role changed within a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and it just helped you grow your career pretty quickly. Yeah. I think, um, you know, every opportunity has been, um, opportunity based. I have goals, but when the right thing comes, you know, in front of me, I, I, like you said, I, I've certainly taken advantage of it. And I think that, you know, being closed-minded or being too narrowly focused um, is probably something that's, that's not good. Um, but you still, you know, you, you want to have something that you're working towards, but you want to still be open to, to everything else that's going on. Um, volunteer, like it's really not fun <laughs> to not get paid to show up especially in sports, probably really early or, you know, and you stay really late. Um, but that's a good way to, again, authentically network with people. The Delray tournament, um, one year after college, I it was in between jobs and it, that tournament's in February, I think, right? M March. Mm -hmm. And um, I wasn't doing anything. And I called up, you know, I called them up and I said, hey, do you have anything for me to do this week? You don't have to pay me, although I would like to be paid for it. Um, you know, can I just go like sit in your media center and like print notes or whatever? And they were like, yeah, yeah. And so that was a good opportunity for me to just say like, Hey Pete, how you doing? Or, you know, um, whoever was coming in and out of the media center and just, just to keep in touch with people. And so don't be above a volunteer gig. It's they're they're worth it in the end. And I got to do some cool things too. When I was in college at Florida State, I did uh, NCAA women's soccer tournaments and, and things like that. And just to be around and um, you know, to observe and, and meet people when, when the time is right. So 
In your time from starting out at those tennis tournaments in the Delray press room to now with the PGA, what are the things that you've seen kind of change the most within the industry? That is a good, perplexing question. (laughs) Um, Asterisk, nothing to do with COVID, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think think the the traditional... um, particularly when it comes to like partnerships, the traditional marketing, slapping your logo on everything and buying millions of dollars of hospitality mentality has really changed. Um, From a marketing perspective, companies want experiences. They want um, deeper engagement with potential clients or um, potential, um, you know, uh, customers for them. They don't, just want brand recognition. They want more. They want those on-site activation opportunities. They want, you know, to capture information. They want more. And and frankly, they should get more. And, and they push us to be better, um, to be more creative. Um, so that certainly has changed. I feel like when I started, it was like just slap logos on everything. And uh, there you go. We fulfilled your we fulfilled your requirements. Um, the other thing, and particularly the nationals were um, pivoting on pretty successfully, I would say, is, you know, traditionally companies would buy suites with 20, 30 tickets for 80 games. It's a huge commitment. It's cost a lot of money and um, to administer is, is pretty burdensome. They were able to um, survey the, the marketplace and they saw that companies were actually more interested in doing smaller, very high-end experiences. And so they created these, I guess you would call them like boxes where they would have four seats and it was like a very, very high-end restaurant and a company could buy a box or they could buy half of the season and uh, for probably close to the same revenue um, have more higher impact in that company because it was so much less of an administrative burden and, um, you know, their executives could go and have, you know, more intimate conversations. And um, they found that, that that was more successful than your traditional um, suite. So I think across the board, that's kind of happening. Um, you know, in the golf world now, we're still doing our traditional chalets where people come and go. Um, but we're also creating smaller clubs that you can buy a table. And so you can have those um you know, more intimate conversations, more intimate outings with clients versus, you know, a big chalet, traditional chalet. Having worked in sports as long as you have, do you find it's changed how you attend events yourself? What, not just sports, but (laughs) concerts and and festivals where you're kind of always looking at what's going on? (laughs) For sure. And I, I, everyone I know, like whatever sector they're in, they feel the same way. Um, I would say since I get to work on Super Bowl, the security aspect of things, I'm like a crazy person now. I'm like, they didn't, they didn't properly screen me. It just could have like had a weapon. What you know? So for sure, when it comes to that, and then of course, like I'm a signage nerd too. Um, I'll be with my family. I'll be like, oh, check out that really cool sign, or oh, they have dynamic signs there. That's new. Um, and they're all like, you know, they roll their eyes at me like. Oh, you're, you're ridiculous. So yeah, 
I, so actually I like, uh, going to motorsports events, which is also kind of different th than the things that I've been involved in. And, um, you know, over the years, they've definitely improved on what they're doing as well. Um, it's kind of a different atmosphere, especially if you're like camping at the track or, or things like that. So I'm like, Oh, you know, they should do this here. That would be great. Or, Oh, my pet peeve is also directional signage. How, <laughs> like how does a venue not have proper directional signage? You just need an intern or yourself to go walk. And you're like, okay, if I don't know where to go, I need to sign here. That was, that's really, that's really what gets me directional signs. <laughs> the directional signs, its own thing. But in terms of when you see something done well, are you, mm -hmm. is that your camera roll now? Is it just all these things you've taken from other events? Are you making notes? How are you taking this back to the office with you the next morning? Yeah, that definitely pictures of, oh, that is a good, that's a great sign or that's a cool activation or yeah, certainly. Um, and especially with current partners, right? So we were lucky enough at PGA to just sign Rolex and obviously they have a huge portfolio of events and they um, execute a lot of different ones. And so I was taking pictures of their clocks the last time I was at a, at an event, um, you know, are these the clocks we're going with? Like what? Do, do we need a different design? Like, you know, so certainly it's, it's like, it's, it's overdrive when you're at one of these things. Cause it's just as much a research expedition as it is a, a fun event. I will also say that working in the industry, you don't want to live like the person that's sitting at the top row at the baseball game either. You have like, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go if I have to sit in the upper deck. I think I might skip it. Um, I don't have special access. Nah, I can't. No, I can't no, 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 <laughs> no special access. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, it, it's just a little difficult when you're used to, you know, a certain level of um, ticket, if you will. <laughs> Understood. Understood. I close every episode with the same half dozen questions for each of my guests Call it the set pieces. So if you'll indulge me, what are podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? So uh, Sports Business Journal obviously is the, the Bible for us, um, certainly related to, to news in the, in the industry. And actually I have a, I'm subscribed to an email list that's called Sports Impact Ticker. So one of the people that I worked with at the CVB in Minneapolis liked it because they did a lot of, um, they do a lot of economic impact, youth sports. Um, it's a very broad swath of um, news that they cover and it comes a couple times a week. And so I always read that when it's in my email. You know, you get your big stuff through push notifications. That's sort of where I get my big news. Um, so it's the little stuff that's not normally covered. I like to read. Um, podcasts besides yours, of course, credentials only Thank you. <laughs> to serial killer podcasts. Um, I'm currently listening to one called unraveled, which is about the long Island serial killer. True crime is really where it's at. Um, for me. <laughs> okay. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you're not learning a lot from those. Uh, that, that'll be another episode here. Um, social media. Your most valuable mm -hmm. files, the posts you don't want to miss. So I love Darren Ravel. Um, he's great. He's got a great intersection of sport and, you know, 
the way he um, frames things is is fun and, and entertaining. You know, I, I, I was thinking about um, some u- unique ones because obviously I follow all the leagues and, and athletes and particularly I love Formula One um, stuff because you don't really get too much of that in the mainstream media in the States. And so I follow all those teams and they recently released all of their new cars and um, stuff so that I always keep up with that. I love um, Barstool. It's, it's, a, it's definitely, it's a niche, um, but I think they've been um, really innovative and in, in just their approach for bad or, you know, or for good. Um, so I keep up with what they're, they've got going on. And then, like I said, those, those push notifications from, from major media outlets come really quickly. And so that's where I get my breaking stuff. What are a couple of books you'd recommend people read? So I am not a big reader, but recently, since, uh, I've been home a lot, um, I joined a book club and I really enjoyed where the crawdads sing. It's a beautifully written book, um, really gives you some great perspective on what happened in the South and, and the um, racial tension that was going on um, when the book uh, takes place. And I thought that was a really great um, book. And then I also read, I don't, I don't really read um, sports related books because I feel like a lot of them are, are very, can be very similar. I mostly you know, read fiction. I also read this book called Verity, which is a suspenseful book. And I don't normally read books quickly. And this one I got through in two days, which was crazy. Um, it was very suspenseful. It's kind of a, I don't know, a, a thriller. Um, and that was really good. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? Take your vacation days. I think... Huh. It's not really a secret. It's not really a cheat code, but I think it can help with success. It's so important, especially these days where the days never seem to end. There's no start, there's no finish. And um, I feel like vacations or even just time off to reboot and refresh. You know, I know me in particular, I whenever I take a vacation, I come back with all kinds of new ideas and, you know, I'm recommitted to the job and, you know, just ready to go for another few months, especially when um, you're working events, you know, the, the tank can, can be empty and, and those vacation days are really important to, to refill it. What was your favorite sports memory as a kid? So I grew up in South Florida, so there's not a lot of great sports down here. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, and you know, I, I, we're, my family is born and raised here too. So um, I didn't have to dig deep though. The 1997 world series. Um, oh boy. Won. Um, I apologies to any listeners from Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, my dad and I like always kind of watched and I was pretty young and uh, so I didn't get to stay up for it, but I just remember him like running into my room and like screaming and like waking me up going, they won, they won. <laughs> and so I got to watch the, uh, the trophy presentation and everything. And so um, that was a good one with, with me and my dad. My last question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? So we do. Um, and, in, you know, working in tennis, there's like literally a million 
in baseball, you get one for the whole year, unless you get you're fortunate enough to do postseason. And then postseason literally has, and I'm not even kidding you, like 50 for like one game because there's so many different access points. Um, but yeah, I do. And actually, I recently moved, and my sister was like, "Why are you keeping these like shoe boxes full of these things?" And I'm like, "You cannot throw them away. They're like badges of honor." Um, so. They are currently stowed under my bed in my studio apartment in New York City because they do not go with the aesthetic of a studio in New York. <laughs> so one day when I have a woman cave or like an office, I'm kind of minimalist when it comes to office. Like I just have a laptop and a mouse and that's pretty much it. But one day I'll figure out how to display them and you know, display them proudly. But for now they're in a shoebox. <laughs> Brittany, thanks so much for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Pete. Brittany shared some great advice while also providing some insight into her various experiences. I appreciate her taking the time to come on this episode, and I appreciate you for taking the time to listen. Make sure you follow us on social media at Credentials Only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. As a reminder, you can check out show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Do us a favor too. Take a moment and leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Big thanks to Mike Bouchet, the editor of Credentials Only, which is a Halter Media production.